Hey cousins, you are listening to Revolutionary Hood Rat with Kim Young of Dope Black Social Worker and welcome back. We got us another episode. Let's see how this goes. Um, Let me start by checking in. I would uh, say how I'm showing up in this moment. I'm a little bit distracted, right? So just to be honest, like I want to be here in this moment. I want to record this episode. I want to talk shit with y'all. I want to spend some time with y'all and I got other shit I need to do, right? However, what I want to acknowledge is this is good for me. It truly is. What I've noticed the past few episodes that I have recorded and had this opportunity just to like sit and be and reflect and process and joke and kiki, it has created an immense amount of space <laughs> in my head um, that I am grateful for. Like it allows me to show up differently in other places and in other relationships in my life. And so even though I'm distracted because I have things to do, I'm honoring the fact that like, this is good for me. So I'm making space to do it. Does that make sense? So I don't know if that's like a complete check-in, but that's how I'm showing up, um, in this moment as I record this episode. And so let's jump right into our revolutionary news for the week. And I would like to lift up and shout out all of the amazing revolutionary social workers, therapists, activists, organizers, legislators, supporters, co-accomplices, all them people in Illinois who are doing phenomenal work to transform the licensure process in the state of Illinois. So for those who may be unfamiliar, there has been work happening across the country to really take a look at the social work licensure process, given the data analysis report that the Association of Social Work Boards released last year, which essentially just confirmed what a lot of people already knew, that testing bias exists inside of social work licensure exams. And so we know that the exam is racist, classist, ableist, all the things, and it is not a good measurement of what makes a quote unquote effective social worker. And so since the report has come out and even prior to, right? Like social work educators for decades, hell, the National Association of Black Social Workers since, since the inception of like social work licensure have been like, uh, nah, we not with that, right? So like organizations and researchers and educators and just folks who have been close to this issue for a very long time have really questioned the validity of board exams, of the ASWB board exam, and acknowledge that this process was going to create vast inequities to access licensure in the field of social work. And so that is exactly what has happened. And it is really dope to see um, folks across the country take on this task of reforming the licensure process so that it is more equitable, so that more Black and Brown folks right? Folks who have challenges with testing, you know, uh, disabilities, visible, invisible, and otherwise have a pathway towards gaining some sort of licensure in the field of social work. Yeah. If it was up to me to like abolish all that shit, because as I have shared on my Instagram before, I don't even want my social work clinical license anymore, but I understand the power and the access that I get because of it. And I'm Black and I'm woman, and I'm young. And so without that license, I know for an absolute fact, there are people who would not entertain me, 
would not give me the time of day, would not give me access to rooms and resources and opportunities. But at the end of the day, I like abolish all that shit. But that's not where we are. That is not the reality that we live in. And so the folks in Illinois have organized and they have pushed for a piece of legislation um, that would provide a more equitable pathway to licensure. And so it is House Bill 2365. Um, that is moving through the state legislature in Illinois, which will essentially provide clinical social workers with an alternative route to obtain their license um, with a number of conditions. But one of them being like, if you fail this ASWB exam, like so many people do, like to no fault of their own, people just fail the exam. I know folks in my life that have been trying to pass that test for 10 years, y'all. 10 years, so much money spent, right? So much money spent, so much time, so much emotional labor and investments have gone into trying to pass a damn test, which is no mark of a good social worker. Because we all know there are some people who have passed this exam. You just like, ooh, you? Oh, no. Um, but anyways, like in Illinois, this piece of legislation would offer an alternative route for those who have failed the board exam to be able to still obtain their clinical licensure. And so I'm really hopeful and I'm really motivated that the folks in Illinois will be able to see this bill all the way through. And I can only imagine the level of compromise that they had to take on in order to get the bill this far. But y'all, you got it this far. And that is dope as hell. And it is such an inspiration. And it has me fired up to think about what is possible in my own state where I carry licensure and I have residency. And so I just want to shout out and thank, shout out and thank and express gratitude to the people on the ground that are organizing and doing the work in Illinois to make social worker licensure more equitable for folks. So shout out to y'all. So let's get into just the earth is ghetto for the week. Nick Cannon, y'all, I came across this article. It was online published on people's website um, where it talks about Nick Cannon. The headline is Nick Cannon is preparing to tell son six Kids he's met are his siblings. Nobody talks about it, right? And so in this article, Nick is basically sharing that his 12 children have not all met each other. And he talks about like in an ideal, an ideal world or situation that the kids would go on vacations together, hang out together, maybe even go to the same schools, but that's just not his situation. He also says that like each of the kids, and these are his words, are under the jurisdiction of the mothers and that he attempts to be respectful of the mother's wishes and understands that even though he wants all the kids to know each other and hang out together and go on vacation together, that all the moms don't want that. Y'all, Nick Cannon got 12 kids in several different households. I, I'm not going to even attempt to like dive into all of those different layers because a couple of different reasons. One, Nick is not my client and it's unethical to make any type of diagnostic kind of assumptions or assessments of just behaviors we all have access to observe for anybody. So I'm not going to do that for Nick, but I know he got something inside that big purple book. He got a couple of things inside of that big purple book. 
known as the DSM. But we're not even going to dive into that because Nick is trying to dive into the DSM. Did y'all see it was on social media that um, Nick Cannon wants to go and study child psychology? Nick, I'm concerned. I'm worried. The last thing he needs to do is be studying child psychology. He needs to be going to talk to a psychologist, a therapist, a little inpatient, how it all nap, something like Nick is not well, but I'm going to leave that alone and I'm going to move us along because y'all, I'm officially on like my Beyonce Renaissance countdown. So some of y'all might already know this because I shared on social media a few months back about how like irresponsible I am, even though I'm very responsible and people trust me with their lives, their social security numbers and their children. Because I had bought Beyonce tickets before I even had like plane tickets, hotel accommodations, outfits, anything. But now everything is coming together. And my first Beyonce show, yes, first, because your girl's going to two. My first Beyonce show is in less than 60 days. It is 60 days until I get to see the big shiny horse and Beyonce and all the sequins and all the just beautiful colors and sounds and visuals and outfits. I'm beyond excited because I have done my best to stay away from all of the Renaissance tour footage possible that is floating around online. Like I don't even watch the videos. And if I do see a video, I don't watch or like I don't turn the audio on because I've seen these videos where like Blue Ivy, my birthday twin, my fellow Capricorn, Blue Ivy has popped up on like the European tour dates and has came through and done her little like one, two step looking cute as ever. And I already know for a fact, Beyonce not gonna let Blue come on any American stage because American crowds could be raggedy. Like think about how people treated and talked about Blue when Blue was a baby and Beyonce kept her hair natural. Like folks ain't never really done right by Blue. So why would Beyonce let Blue touch a stage in America for these dusty ass crowds? And so I'm very upset that we probably will not get a chance to see Blue Ivy put it down with a one-two step on the stage because Americans be ghetto and raggedy. <sighs> but yes, I'm officially within like my Beyonce countdown. I'm beyond excited. But like even before I get to Beyonce, y'all, I got a couple of um concerts lined up this summer because I love music. I love music. Like music, I often say, is my heartbeat. I still remember when my MacBook from undergrad, I had like bought it in 2007. It um it wouldn't turn on. Like the memory, it was some shit. It just wouldn't turn on. And I went to the Apple store, this was a few years back, and they was like, hey, you either, and this is before like streaming music boomed. They said, look, you either got to choose all your pictures or you choose all your music. And I had an iPod Classic you know, the one with the dial in the middle. And that hole had like 10,000 songs on it. I said, oh no, like I've been accumulating that library of music for like a decade. I'm not giving that shit up. So like I chose my music over my pictures. Wow to even think about because music is so incredibly accessible now. But anyways, I love music. And so I have a couple of shows lined up. I'm really excited about this Project Pet 
if y'all know about Project Pet, I need you to go learn about Project Pet. Because like as somebody who grew up in California, but always had a connection and tie to the South, I love Southern sounds. Like I love trap music. I love 808s. I love all that shit. I love the juking. I love all that shit. And so this Project Pet concert, I'm about to get my whole entire life. It's going to be a good ass time. And I'm going to see 21 Savage because if y'all definitely don't know this about me, I ride for 21 Savage. I love 21 Savage down. And I know he on tour with Drake, but I don't really like no Drake stuff like that. I knew like Aubrey and Jimmy from Degrassi and like mixtape Drake from like 07, 08. But I'll be very honest with you. I don't know too much of this new shit, but like 21 Savage is also on this tour and I know his catalog. I'm about to act a plum fool at this 21 Savage and Drake concert, as well as this Project Pat concert. And y'all already know I'm cutting the hell up for Beyonce two times. For two times. I'm cutting up for Beyonce two times, okay? Um, Along those lines of like, just how I've been exposed to music, even though I'm from California, I haven't lived in the state of California in well over a decade. And there are times when I wonder, like, do I even still have my California accent? Um, Because if y'all don't know, like, Californians definitely have an accent, even between Southern California and Northern California. You could definitely tell when you're in the state and from the state or live in the state for a number of years where somebody is from based off of their accent, even the way they dress, um, their choice of words, and the type of food that they eat, who being real honest. And so I had, it was like last week, I had said car, but it came out like very Southern California. I was like car, car, not car, car. I don't know if y'all are aware of this, but if you pay attention, people from Southern California be struggling with that AR, like any words. They have like an AR together. It's real hard, right? So like car, bar, four, like. <laughs> and I really didn't even recognize it was a thing until I had went to undergrad in the Bay Area and they didn't pronounce words that have an AR the same way that we pronounce words that have an AR in Southern California. And I was like, yo, like, yo, these worlds are different. This language is different. These accents are different. But then I was also really proud of myself last week when my shit came back and it came back real natural. I was like, no, nah, it's in the car. And I was like, ooh, Kim, it's still in you. Like you never will be able to fully get rid of this California accent, even though you still say y'all. You can say y'all and core and bar and far. <laughs> So yes, if y'all didn't know, like Californians definitely have an accent. There's definitely a difference between Southern California and Northern California from culture to language, to accents, to food, to dress, to ways of living in life. Like those are two completely different worlds. And if we're being real honest, that shit is two completely different states. Um, And I love it through and through. I love that I get to say I was born and raised in California I love that my passport says California because if like that reparation shit pull through and if California ever succeeds from the union, if it's going to be like, look, born and raised, passport, birth certificate, I'm from here, let me in, cut me my check. 
Like I haven't lived here in a month of Sundays, but my blood is all through and through as a Californian. Um, yo, I love being from California. So I want to move on and talk a little bit about this submersible. So the submarine, and I'm not even going to spend a lot of time on it because the most I have empathy for is that 19-year-old baby who allegedly didn't even want to be on the submarine when it imploded and like everybody unfortunately passed away. But that submersible situation, that submarine situation is such an analogy for just the absorbent wealth um, that is disgusting on this planet and in this country and it really showcased the value that folks put on wealthy lives and white lives over any other life right because folks who were following along also learned the knowledge of like there was another vessel that was at sea with hundreds of refugees seeking safety um that also needed resources and rescuing and opportunities to survive and they did not receive it. But these five people, wealthy people, got all the attention, all the resources, the sense of urgency, like their lives just had greater value. And we can't even ignore the fact that that is just the truth. And so it makes it real difficult when politicians and legislators and leaders and people try to be like, oh, no, nah, like we care about y'all, too. No, you don't. No, you don't. Like, it's evident in your policies, your actions, the way you respond to situations that some lives have more value than other lives. Wealthy lives have more value than any other life. Like, wealthy lives just have more value than any other life. And, like, they cannot continue to lie to us. And we can't continue to pretend like that's just not the damn truth. Because it is. It is. But a lighter note. I do want to talk a little bit. Have y'all heard about Shelby Hewitt? So Shelby Hewitt is this 32-year-old woman in Boston who uh, was employed as a social worker for the Boston Department of Children and Family Services. And Shelby's ass had enrolled in five different area Boston high schools, five different high schools, and was recently found out to be fraudulent and a grown ass adult because allegedly some man came to the school that folks believed was her garden at the time and complained that she was being bullied and that they were gonna disenroll her from or unenroll her from the school and enroll her in another school. And then the school was like, wait a minute, like this information's not matching up. These records aren't matching up. Something is not making sense. They get to digging, they find out that Shelby's ass is 32 years old and had been enrolled at five different high schools in the Boston area. And at the time she was high, um, enrolled at these five different high schools in the Boston area, her ass was working as a social worker for the Department of Children and Family Services. I need y'all to go look this up because when you see Shelby's picture, you're gonna be like, huh? How? Oh, no, this don't make no sense. Like, I know that, you know, the young folks are presenting in ways that appear to be a bit more mature. But when you know teenagers and adolescents, you know one when you see one. And when you see Shelby, 
Shelby don't look like anybody's teenager or adolescent. Maybe one that's had a hard life, but damn sure not at anybody's high schooler. But yes, Shelby's ass was enrolled at five different high schools in the Boston area while also working as a social worker for the Department of Children and Family Services. She has since been suspended. I don't think from the article I read, I could be wrong. I hope that I'm wrong. I don't think uh, she was terminated from her role, but I think she was like put on some sort of leave. But y'all go look Shelby up, look at her face and then let me know if you think she could have passed as a high schooler because I don't see it. I don't see it at all. And speaking of faces, my current obsession right now is um, Face Off on Netflix. So if you have not seen Face Off, Face Off is a makeup competition show. And it is based in the UK. And there are makeup artists who are essentially trying to win this competition to gain access to opportunities and publicity and contracts and to break into the makeup industry in the UK. So my girl Val. Val Garland. I have never heard of this gem of a human until this show. So Val is, I guess, big wig, big deal over in the UK. She works for L'Oreal, I believe. It's like a makeup, somebody important in makeup. Hell, I don't know. All that matters is Val has one of the best taglines I have come across in a very long time. Anytime she is like impressed by whatever a makeup artist does, if they have like achieved all of the marks and um, made their looks the best out of the whole group in that particular challenge, Val will be like, ding dong, ding dong, darling. I'm gonna play a clip so y'all can actually hear Val because I'm not really doing her any justice and I need y'all to actually hear what Val sounds like. So hold on. So here's my girl Val with her ding dongs, darling. Ding dong. 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 Ding dong and thank you, thank you, thank you. Ding dong, Lee. Ding dong. Ding dong, darling. Ding dong. Ding dong, darling. Ding dong. Ding dong, darling. Did it. Baby. <laughs> Y'all, I cannot stop saying ding dong, darling. And then, like, once you look Val up, if you don't know what she looks like, you're going to see this woman, like blonde hair with these really big, dark glasses, a bold eyeliner, talking about some ding dong, darling. Tick, 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 ding dong. I can't get enough. I can't get enough. I can't stop saying it. I'm not going to apologize for saying it. And I hope that I have encouraged all of y'all to say ding dong, darling, too, when somebody does what they need to do that impresses you or that just makes you go ding dong, tick. That was marvelous, darling. So I've been watching a lot of Face Off and it's like four seasons. I've already watched one, I've started another one and I think I'm gonna enter into, you know, like that depression that comes when you finish a series and you're like, oh shit, what am I gonna watch now? Um, Oh man, pray for me because that's gonna be real sad when that gets here. So y'all know my brain be working. And I be having a lot of like random thoughts 
And I was thinking the other day about like January 6th and the insurrection. And it I was really curious about like the charter bus drivers on the day of the insurrection. I'm I really want to know like their perspective on the event, what they saw, what they heard, if they even wanted to drive those buses. Like what the buses smelled like, what the people eat, what were they talking about? I would love to hear the perspective from charter bus drivers about January 6th insurrection, because I feel like they know something that we need to know. And somebody needs to get a camera in their face. Like we need a documentary from the viewpoint of the charter bus drivers from the insurrection. That was like the most random thought that I had last week. And I was like, oh, I would watch that shit. I would watch interview after interview of charter bus drivers from insurrection day. And y'all might act like you wouldn't watch it too, but I know you would, cause that shit would be good. Because I also feel like charter bus drivers have character. They kind of remind me of Waffle House employees, but they drive buses. I think it'd be really dope. Like, incredibly dope to hear from them. So, I think that's all I have for Earth is Ghetto this week. Um, There's more that I can possibly talk about. I just don't feel like it. And so, I'm going to save some of that for next week. And let's move into our Tales from the Trap. All right, for the tales from the trap this week, I want to talk about the first job that I had out of undergrad. And so when I graduated from undergrad at San Jose State and I got my undergraduate degree, I was in a dual degree program. So it was two bachelors. So I have a bachelor's in behavioral science and a bachelor's in sociology because a bitch is nosy. That was the main reason that I got those degrees because I was also the person in undergrad. I changed my major a smooth four times. I was like an African-American studies major, but then I said, girl, what, what you gonna do with that? Like what job, what you gonna do with it? Um, so I was African-American studies major. I was a political science major. I was a sociology major. And then I switched to behavioral science with a double major in sociology. And then I worked really hard to try to get the uh, my minor in African-American studies, but I was just short by maybe a class or two. Um, but anyways, like I was able to graduate from undergrad within four years, which is anybody that went through the California um, collegiate system, it's hard to do, really hard to do. Like the average graduation a uh, time frame was like five to six years, but I got out in four years, even though I changed my major. And that was mainly because I took AP and IB classes in um, high school. And I was enrolled in community college in high school that allowed me to start undergrad with college credits under my belt. A bitch is not done. I'm very brilliant. Anyway, so when I graduated from high school, I mean, not high school, when I graduated from undergrad, I moved back home uh, to San Diego because what else was I going to do, right? Like I wasn't ready to live on my own. I wasn't in a position to stay 
in the Bay Area and try to fund my own life. So I moved back home. Um, and I end up getting a full-time job at a residential treatment center for at the time they referred to these young people as severely emotionally disturbed youth, so SED youth. Um, so I worked at a residential treatment center for 13 to 17 year olds. Um, and it was a co-ed facility. And this was back in 2010. So on this facility or on this campus, it was locked. It was a locked campus and there were multiple pods. So there was a male pod, a female pod, and then a co-ed pod. And then the young people also attend school on campus. Um, there was clinics on campus, um, like recreational areas on campus. I worked in the co-ed unit and I ended up getting hired to work what was known as the split shift. And so for the split shift, you work four days a week, 10 hours a day. And my shift was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So like on Thursdays and Fridays, I worked the morning shift. And then Saturday and Sunday, it was the PM shift. And I'm not even going to hold y'all. Like the, the split shift was, in my opinion, and even in the young people's opinion at that time, like the best shift ever. Like we were chill. We literally just wanted to come to work and go the hell back home. And so when I worked at this residential treatment facility, it was my first time being exposed to like young people who weren't in a after-school program or a community-based setting. It was young people who were either placed there by like foster care system or by the courts. Um, that was pretty much it. There was That wasn't the type of facility for like private pay. It was literally young people who were in foster care or they were court mandated to be there and um i remember interacting with young people who have experienced things that are incredibly unspeakable like have known a type of pain that nobody should ever come to know at a very young age had experienced seen things had things done to them um that if people really knew like i just i know evil exists i'm gonna just i'm gonna just say it like that this job taught me that evil exists but so does so much good so does so much good and so on this unit i remember like i was so chill even though i was incredibly young i had to be maybe like 22 like 22, 23, when I was working um, in the facility, I was the youngest person on my team. A lot of folks, like this was their career, like working in these residential treatment facilities. So they were a lot older. And I remember just thinking about like, all right, cool. Like, how do I just kind of come in here, be chill, relate to young people, not stress nobody out, have a good time, stay curious have fun, implement routine and consistency, and just be kind. Like, I remember just trying to be curious and kind. Because at that time, I still didn't know anything about social work. I knew nothing about grad school. I just knew, like, I needed a job. And I had worked with young people. And I had these degrees. And apparently, it qualified me to work at that residential treatment. And I remember coming across... Um, like young people with severe mental illness for the first time, like literal psychosis, um, young people who had some traits with like schizophrenia, 
Um, I, there was even a young person who, uh, he definitely had neurodivergence um, and some cognitive impairments, also had a TBI, if I'm not mistaken, but he was funny as shit. But also, and the shit part, even though he was funny as shit, he was very kind, he was great to be around, y'all. He used to play in his shit. And I remember like when staff would piss him off. And let me just say, like, I was never the staff that pissed any kid off. Like, I even I have photographic evidence of a kid that drew me a picture. It's like of some mountains and um water flowing. And he gave it to me and he told me, You keep me calm, like the mountains and the water in this picture. Because I was never the source of any young person's aggression. But, anyways, like this kid, when adults and they would mainly be the male staff right with power struggle off some bullshit they would power struggle like if he didn't complete his hygiene or if his shoes weren't lined up in the right spot in the room like all kind of things that made everybody's life difficult and so when they would power struggle with him he had this disorder like this condition where he couldn't control his bowel movement and so like he would just shit y'all and then like go dig and play in his shit and smear it all on the walls. And then even throw things at staff. And I remember being the one like, hey, 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 could we consider doing something different? <laughs> Which is cold for like, stop playing in your shit and let's try to use your words to figure out what's going on to make this situation better. And so like, I like I still recall, and I didn't even know at the time what I was doing was like effective because I could get, I could get kids to calm down. I can get them to deescalate without having to move to a restraint because in this facility, like we were permitted to restrain kids. And we also had like this space in the back called the PSR, the protective separation room. And so like you could, you restrain a kid and then take them into the PSR and depending on how they present it, they can either be in the locked PSR or the unlocked PSR, like some very inhumane shit. And it used to bother me. I used to hate having to be a part of restraints and having to take kids into the PSR. Like I still got flashbacks on that shit. But anyways, like I remember being able to like calm kids down and de-escalate before we even had to get to that situation by just being curious about their conditions and their feelings and their thoughts. And I had no idea what I was doing was therapeutic. I just thought it was being good to people. I had no language for any of this. Um, but I remember this job also introduced me to the field of social work because I saw like there were these other people that would be on the units and they would come in and out and they would grab kids and pull them away for things. And I didn't know what the things were, but I found out those things were therapy, right? They would pull them away for therapy, for family sessions, for goal setting, for like case management type stuff. And I just started asking like, hey, what do y'all do? And I remember one of the ladies told me, well, I'm a social worker. I said, what is that? And like, she explained it to me. She told me what the process was. And she mentioned like, you know, she went to grad school and then she finished grad school. And then now she was doing her practicum hours because she was working towards licensure. And I was like, grad school? What is that? 
because I'm a first generation college student. So I figured like once I made it through undergrad, I said, oh girl, you you good. Like what else is there to do? That was always the goal was to complete undergrad. What is this grad school shit that people are talking about? And so I started looking into graduate programs in social work. And then I discovered like the social work program didn't require a standardized test, the GRE. So I said, well, hell, I think I might be able to do this because even though I'm brilliant and smart, a thug cannot take a test. I just can't take a test. So I actually do not know how, aside from luck and black Jesus, how I pass that ASWB exam to get my license. But anyway, so this job taught me about the field of social work. It introduced me to the field of social work, but it also introduced me to all of the parts about myself that make me really good at working with young people and working with folks that are in a crisis. I can't even explain through words how calm I am in a crisis. It's a little, it's not even, I don't think it's scary. It's just like, wow. And I've, in retrospect, like I even reflect on like situations that other people have lost their shit in where I've been like, cool, here's here's what's going on. And we need to do one, two, three, four to get to point A, B, and C, right? Like, and I didn't even know that I had those traits in me. And I don't think they would have showed up in the way that I needed them to, to help direct my path, I guess, into the field of social work, into working with young people and young adults and their families, if I didn't take that job at this residential treatment center. Um, even though I still have vivid memories of things that happened to young people in that facility, um, but also all the good times that I had. I remember it was also during this time when I worked in the residential facility, I was really into photography. So I had like, you know, an expensive camera and I had set up a time to do headshots of all the young people that lived in the facility at the time, because I remember them telling me stories of how like they didn't have pictures of themselves because they just had moved from place to place to place to place. And their things just got lost um, through all of their different transitions. And so I was like, oh, that's easy. Like we can make that happen. And so like was able to coordinate and, you know, they felt so good. They got their haircut, hair done, makeup done, clothes styled. And then I was able to take um, their headshots, right? So like those type of memories still hold me and make me feel good about that time in my life because it really helped set me on this path. But it also let me know I'm really good at this. And now I'm even better because I have the skill sets to match the natural things that I'm already made up of. Um, and that job was an incredibly pivotal moment in my life. And it set me down the path that I am now. So sometimes I even wonder like if I wouldn't have taken that job and maybe took a job somewhere else, where would I have ended up? But that time that I spent in that residential treatment center, running after kids that AWOL from the facility. But then even as we were running, I was like, why are we running? Because he either going to come back or he not. Why are we running after this kid? Let him go. 
Like I remember being 22, like I'm not running after nobody. And I remember like even working the night shift, kids would be like, we about to AWOL, bet. You ain't got to fight me for shit. I'll move out the way. You could walk out the door. You ain't got to worry about nothing. Even when they would put me on gate duty. So you would have staff that would be on the at the door on the unit and then a staff at the gate at the top of the facility. Baby, if you say you want to leave, bet. No resistance from me because I'm going home. <laughs> I am going home. And I just remember like grown ass adults try to argue with these kids over some simple shit. And when I would just present it like, you listen, you got it. You just gonna let me go? Absolutely. And they would walk out the gate. Like, you really gonna let me go? Yeah. And then they would like walk through the parking lot and then bring their ass right back inside. So <laughs> that job let me know I got this and that I can do this and that I am really, really, really good at what I do when it comes to working with youth and young adults that some people would say have challenging behaviors. When for me, they don't have challenging behaviors. They're kids that I'm incredibly curious about and just want to get to know and be good towards. And so that is my Tales from the Trap this week is from my time back in 2010 of working at that residential treatment center for young people and um, how much love. I'm going to say it like that because there's nothing wrong with saying that you love people, even those that you serve and work with, but how much love that I have for each of those young folks that allowed me into their world and uh, showed me kindness back, which is really dope, really dope. So let's move into our good black word for the week. So this past week, I have been working through this, um, working through understanding my relationship with loneliness as opposed to being alone, but also this journey towards becoming my greatest friend, right? So I'm going to try to break some of that down. Um, I once knew, I thought I knew what loneliness was. And I believe it you know it was a time and I'm, I'm imagining that many of us have experienced it where we have just felt lonely and even though we felt lonely and even like during those times it's hard to even recognize that we can feel lonely but are we really alone like that is always the question but there was a time when I thought no there was a time not no thought there was a time when I really felt lonely but I knew I wasn't alone and a lot of that had to do with I didn't know how to be my own friend right so like in my current practice this week the passage that I'm working through is this one whatever your doubts and beliefs about who you are you have to learn how to be at ease and make friends with yourself before you can truly be at ease with the rest of the world so whatever your doubts and beliefs about who you are, you have to learn how to be at ease 
and make friends with yourself before you can truly be at ease with the rest of the world. And so like, for me, what comes up is how do I, (laughs) how do I deliberately enter into friendship with myself so then I can begin to know internal ease, right? Like being at ease with me, being at peace with me, being um, contemplative with me, being gentle with me, being kind with me. So then I can relate or give that to the rest of the world. And so as I continue like on this journey of my own friendship, it literally has lifted any feelings of loneliness. I don't, I don't know the last time I felt lonely. And a lot of that, I think, is attributed to this intentional practice about learning to be at ease and be my own friend. I have friends. I have a social life. I have phenomenal friends. I have an amazing social life. So like, even without those things, though, though I love my own company. I love spending time with myself. I love being quiet. I love being at ease in my own home, in my own space. And I also enjoy being in the company of other people, but I don't necessarily desire it, right? Like when I want it, I want it. When I don't, I'm good. And so this often makes it... um, difficult for people who don't know how to be by themselves, who don't want to be by themselves, who are not open to learning to be their own friends because it seems like they're trying to fill all of that, I'm going to just have to call it emptiness or that void with other people, other things, instead of trying to fill it with getting to know themselves and getting to become at ease with being their own greatest friend. And so I think what I'm trying to get at is like, we're never really alone. Yes, there are moments in time where we can experience loneliness, but we're never alone. Because at the end of the day, the person we spend the greatest amount of time with on this planet is ourselves. And if we are not in a good relationship with ourselves, a good friendship with ourselves. We don't like ourselves. That's going to be one shitty time that's spent with somebody. And so how can we really journey towards becoming our own friends? <laughs> and like, I know it sounds real woo woo, but like, That goes back to things that I've shared before. Like if you're looking, if you're walking in any direction, like that's away from you for whatever answers you're seeking, you're moving the wrong way. You're walking the wrong way. So like, how can we learn to be at ease and make friends with ourselves before we can do that for or with anyone else? And I think if folks can 
answer that or, or figure that out for themselves, it can start to really um, like move the clouds away from these thoughts or feelings that we're alone because we never are. We're never alone. We might experience loneliness, but you always have yourself. So how can you have the best relationship with you, the most gentle thoughts and kind thoughts and compassionate thoughts and feelings for yourself? And how can you be your own friend? This doesn't mean you don't need other people. Humans need other humans. People need other people. But you also need yourself. I need me. I need me. And I need me to be in the best condition possible where I can be kind and gentle towards my own self, where I can be my own friend. And so I'm continuing to make sense in my life. This passage, whatever your doubts and beliefs about who you are, you have to learn how to be at ease and make friends with yourself before you can truly be at ease with the rest of the world. So if I'm not cool with me, I can't be cool with nothing or nobody else. And it's really cool, y'all. It's really cool to see the fruits of my labor that I've been putting in to my own journey of how at ease I am with me, which then allows me to show up differently in the world and relate to other people. Like, it's really cool to be me right now. I like it. Nah, I love this shit. I love this shit. And so that's my good black word for the week. Um, and as always, y'all already know, please remember and please continue to take care of your heart so that we can take care of each other because I'm going to keep saying it. We are honestly all that we have. And so if we're not caring for ourselves, we cannot care for other people. And then what? Right? So remember to take care of your heart so that we can take care of each other because we are absolutely all that we have. And I'll talk to you next time.